everyone to stand where they are in place and to turn to others and show that you see them and that you bless them with the peace of Christ. You may be seated. Now, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. And then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came out, and when he saw him, fell at his feet begged him repeatedly, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with them. And a large crowd followed and pressed in on him. And now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but... Rather, she grew worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately aware of the power that had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched my clothes? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means 
little girl, get up. And immediately, the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement, and he strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You know, one of the most important questions that has confronted officials for what seems like forever now has to do with the extent to which immigrants are good or bad for the economic and social life of the country here. Now, I, as you might imagine, think that immigrants have proven time and again that they make our country and our lives better by their presence. But you know, other folks argue that immigrants take other people's jobs, that they're somehow a drain on the social safety nets, that they import crime. These things uh, are, according to these folks, too great a cost for our country to bear. And so you know, we need to limit the number of people that we allow into the country. And if that won't do it, then, well, we can think of more extreme measures to dissuade them to say to them somehow, don't come here, we don't want you. But I find it telling that the conversation typically revolves around the costs associated with welcoming people from other countries into our home, rather than around the great gifts that they bring to us. So the, the, the final question that so many people ask is, well, is admitting these immigrants worth it? Does, it? does it pay off for us, for me? Our society spends a great deal of time doing sort of cost-benefit analysis, doesn't it? That is to say, we're socialized to ask, does the benefit I derive from a thing exceed the cost that I'll be forced to pay for it? I love blueberries, for example. But whereas I will pay $2.99 a pound, $3.50 a pound strikes me as highway robbery. You know what I'm saying? Advertising is the practice of convincing you that the prices you're charged for toilet brushes and breath mints are worth the investment that you have to make. Now, this makes a certain amount of sense in a market-based economy. But the problem is that we don't just apply cost-benefit analysis to stuff. We also apply it to other people. Which is to say, the question so often posed by other human beings is, are those people worth it? John Stuart Mill wrote in the middle of the 19th century about the ethics of uh, utilitarianism. And he said that, that ethics are actually a matter of maximizing utility. Now, that doesn't sound very helpful when I say it that way, but maximizing utility 
merely means that we should do as the moral thing that which leads to the greatest happiness. Well, that sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? So according to to, to John Stuart Mill, if I had to make a choice about whether to save one person or save ten people, I make that choice based on the greatest benefit I perceive will come from that action. The sacrifice of one person to save ten is good utilitarian math. Though I would caution that it's certainly not good math for people who claim to follow a man who was sacrificed by the state for the good of many folks and power. <laughs> we ought to be always suspicious. But utilitarianism in Western calculations concerns not, I mean, not only ethical, thorny, thorny ethical dilemmas, but also the investment of energy. For example, does it, does it make more sense to teach one special needs child to read or 10 average kids? And I put average in quotes, of course. I mean, we only have so many resources available. Well, we, need to, we need to use them in the wisest way. We, we need to get the biggest bang for our buck, right? I mean, you can see the problem here. But it's one thing to have to figure out the utility of dividing up food for six when there are seven people on the boat. It's an entirely different thing to apply utilitarian calculations to our everyday social arrangements. Now, under this kind of cost-benefit analysis, people can be judged to cost more than they're worth. How do we deal with the mentally challenged? How do we deal with the terminally ill? What do we do with people who've gotten in over their heads with their mortgages or who've had to buy groceries with the last little bit on their credit cards? What cost do we associate with a three-year-old asylum seeker in a cage? What, what, what is the value of a black man's life as a white police officer kneels on his neck? I mean, what is nine minutes and 46 seconds of a man's life worth? Now, these are difficult questions, obviously. We prefer to have to deal with the easy questions, like should, should um, our, 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 our beautiful, amazing young child go to Harvard or to Yale? Right? Or, can, honey, can we really, uh, can we afford private Zamboni lessons for our sweet little girl? Do we want our child to date the doctor or the lawyer? Does it make more sense to be a Cubs fan or a Cardinals fan? Oh, wait, that's not even a question. 
I mean, let's be honest, by and large, people want their kids to be voted most likely to succeed, not best tongue-piercing. I mean, that's the way our society operates. The pressure to move forward and upward and to associate ourselves with those who do, people of action, people who succeed, those feel like the choices we would like to make all the time. Does the good they represent outweigh the bad? And that's typically how we assess the value of human life. Look, all right, here's a way to think about it. If you have any experience on Facebook, and you know, if God is good to you, maybe you don't, you, you, you know that one of the great moments of pleasure that being on social media can, can bring is when somebody that you've sent a friend request to responds by accepting the request and agrees to become your Facebook friend, right? On the other hand, it can be a little unnerving to send out a friend request to somebody and never have them respond. And you start thinking, did, did he get it? I mean, is he ignoring me? Did I do something to insult him at some point? Does he, does he think that his other friends will think less of him because he's also my friend? I mean, am I goofier than I thought I was? I mean, that can't be right because I hung out with way cooler people in school than he did. And it becomes a sort of endless social calculation of worth. Who's more important? Who's worth my time? Do other people think I'm not worth their time? Now, of course, these endless calculations of worth aren't unique to us. Not unique to the issue of social media. Because people throughout history have been doing these sorts of things all along. I mean, even Jesus isn't completely removed from the social pressure of figuring out who's worth his time and energy. In our gospel this morning, Jesus has just calmed the storm. We talked about this last week. And then he got to the other side and he exercised the demon from the garrison demoniac. After that story of the the, the exorcism of the demon he comes back across the sea to Galilee, back across the sea that he's just calmed, where he's approached by an important man, leader of the synagogue named Jairus. Now, up to this point in Mark, Jesus has gotten kind of a bad reputation for hanging out with all the wrong sorts of people. He's paying attention to people he should pass by on the other side of the street. I mean, healing lepers and paralytics and the demon-possessed, it's just not good for his reputation. Back in chapter 2, he does some leadership recruitment. Not, of course, at the finest business schools, at the finest law schools, med schools, business schools. He does it at a tax booth 
where he calls Levi a tax collector, which is problematic, as we've talked about. The tax collectors were Roman collaborators. But then he adds insult to injury by going to Levi's house to eat with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, people are starting to talk. You have to be a bit more discerning about the company you keep. I mean, Jesus is, his name's getting dragged through the mud. So when Jairus prevails upon Jesus to come see about Jairus' sick little girl, everybody's finally relieved. Because Jairus is the kind of ally that Jesus is supposed to cultivate. Look at him, he's a, he's a pillar of the assembly, the head of the men's morning breakfast down at the synagogue. He, he, president of the local Lions Club, he's got money, he's got contacts, I mean, he can help Jesus network. And the disciples must have been thinking, finally, <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. I mean, do a favor for this guy, no telling what kind of political capital Jesus can start building. But on the way to Jairus' house, something happens. And it shouldn't have been a big thing. Jesus probably should have just kept walking. Because, I mean, you know, step back for a minute and, 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 and you have to realize that when you've got a big fish on the hook like Jairus, you don't want to lose your concentration. You don't want to get distracted by the little people who are pestering you for attention. But Jesus stops anyway. Somebody's yanking on his shirt tail. And he says, who, who, who touched my clothes? And the disciples look at each other, their eyebrows sort of knitted. What do you mean, who touched your clothes? You're in a crowd for crying out loud. And a woman approaches, and she owns up to grabbing at his cloak. Now, at this point in the story, we have to Think about the fact that if Jesus is going to turn over a new social leaf, quit hanging out with the wrong crowd, then this is the perfect time to start. Women in traditional cultures weren't supposed to touch men who were not their husbands. So at this point, Jesus could make a real statement about how he's willing to play ball with the current political environment by, you know, just telling this woman to take a hike. But not only that, this woman is unclean. She has what, uh, what the King James traditionally has called uh, an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years, which is a nice way of saying that she's had female problems. Not just monthly, but daily. For 12 years. Now, menstruating women were considered unclean, which is to say, untouchable. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone, let alone a strange man. So I mean, Jesus has an opportunity here. He, he, could, he could signal his willingness to play by the rules, by, by doing what he's supposed to do, by doing the right thing. The thing that would grease the social gears, the thing that would maximize utility, 
making the largest number of people happy. He could humiliate her. He should humiliate her. Set a precedent. Let everybody know. But he doesn't. He tells her that her faith has healed her. So, so what, you might ask? Well, the outrage is that he gives tacit approval to the women's actions. I mean, she's obviously a drain on society, and you for sure can't encourage that kind of forward behavior. I mean, we know how people are. They'll take advantage of you every time if you think that they can get something for free, especially healthcare. Indeed, if she's in bad shape, it's because God is punishing someone for some sin. But rather than do the socially and politically expedient thing, Jesus walks around on the margins in search of those folks who are hiding in the shadows. He goes where nobody else thinks he ought to go, but he goes. Soon he and Jairus make it to where the sick little girl is, but by the time they get here, she's, she's already gone. Oh well, I mean, nice try, Jesus. Thanks for coming. We've had some nice parting gifts for you. Appreciate you taking the time, but um, all that's left to us now is to start preparing her body for the funeral. And Jesus said, well, you know, I, I'd like to see her anyway. She, she's really only sleeping. And Mark says that everybody laughs at Jesus for saying this. I mean, they've seen dead people before. They know what dead people look like. But Jesus persists. Now, as far as Jairus is concerned, Jesus has done all that could be reasonably asked of him. Because now that, I mean, now that she's dead, Jesus is only going to make himself unclean by going to see her and, 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 and holding her lifeless hand. But this is Jesus we're talking about, right? I mean, he never learns. What is the public relations upside to this? I mean, you've got to think about how this stuff is going to play on cable news. He's, he's, he's just playing checkers, right? Not three-dimensional chess. Well, not Jesus. Ignoring the cost-benefit analysis, he goes to her, takes the little girl's hand, and he tells her, get up. And together they walk out from the shadows hand in hand. And what I find interesting about these two sort of intertwined stories is the issue of how short-sighted they make Jesus appear on the front end. I mean, in both cases, Jesus participates in an activity that's guaranteed to marginalize him in everyone's eyes. I mean, in both cases, he risks the social and political costs of being unclean by touching those who are themselves unclean. 
And a true test of your convictions is what you're prepared to look like a complete idiot for, what you're willing to lose everything for. But you see, the great shock of the story is that once Jesus touches these people, they're healed, made alive. And not only is Jesus not unclean as a result of this encounter, neither any longer are they. In touching these two in an unclean state, Jesus heals them, not only in some physical sense, but perhaps more importantly, he's restored them to the social world in which purity is boss. In other words, he's given them back their status as members in good standing of the community. I mean, he's touched them, taken them out of the shadows, and given them back their lives in more ways than one. See, when Jesus starts walking along the margins, starts looking in the shadows for those who creep around the edges, he redefines the edges so that the margins, that the outside finally gets set at the center. And it's the folks who usually occupy the center who risk finding themselves now on the margins. When Jesus starts looking for people to love, he first starts with those who have too long been on the outside looking in. See, once again, Jesus turns the world on its head the last shall be first, the first shall be last. The one who wants to find life must first lose it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The one who wants to gain the whole world must forfeit everything. Jesus says he's come to make the folks in charge nervous. <laughs> to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sights to the blind. To let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But Jesus, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's just not good math. I mean, we, everybody knows you have to put your money on a winner. Get a good return on your investment. Ride the middle of the road. You know, quit being a radical. Start being more I don't, moderate something. And Jesus says, look, you know, life's just much more interesting out here with these folks. <laughs> hanging around with people out in the shadows. And if you don't believe me, you should ask them. Ask the people who are untouchable. Ask the people who have been cast out. The people who have been neglected. Ask those people who, because society's told them repeatedly that they're not worth the effort, what it means for someone to go out of the way to reach out a hand, to risk the wrath of those bigwigs who occupy the center of things. Ask them whether somebody finally willing to look out for them means anything. You should ask them.
You walk the margins with Jesus. You go looking for those hiding in the shadows. Sooner or later, your whole cost-benefit analysis calculator is going to get really goofed up. I promise. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.